Welcome to the Dive In Movie Cast, a film podcast where two unqualified critics give their opinions and try and differentiate themselves from every other movie podcast out there. My name is Hayden. And I'm Wesley. And today we're going to be getting into uh, Ryan Johnson's 2019 murder mystery thriller, uh, Knives Out. This is a fantastic movie. It's full of twists and turns and all that good stuff. Um, but before we get into it, I forgot to mention this to you. A friend of mine from BC, she was telling me last episode we talked about like um, drive-ins and all that stuff, and uh, my friend from BC was telling me a bit about the drive-in theaters that had already opened up in BC, um, and she was like telling me that there's concession stands are open, so are bathrooms, but people are encouraged to go uh, different times to make the line shorter. Um, but another thing is they're only allowed 50% capacity because technically with the CDC guidelines, um, they, it's still the same rule that applies when you go anywhere. Like when you go to a superstore and you're only allowed a certain amount of people in per square foot, it applies the same way, even if you're in a car. And I think that's weird. Yeah, that, yeah, I mean, I get, I get it because they have to do what they have to do, but that definitely does seem a little bit extra. Well, especially if people are staying in their cars, like it's not like everyone's standing outside on the lawn, you know? Yeah, everybody's already distanced; they're they're not near anybody. So, that, that, yeah, I guess you're right. That doesn't make much sense. But they are they're trying. Movie theaters or drive-ins are trying to um, get past that rule and make a new rule that allows them to have higher capacity because at the moment it's. I mean, it's already been hard for drive-ins to keep the land that they own and all that stuff because, I mean, sales probably aren't that high regularly. And so now when drive-ins are a crucial thing that people can actually still go to, they're really trying to make it so that they can have more people, which, I mean, it's hard to do, but I hope it works out. And 50% is rough, too, because uh, the drive-in that we go to primarily it's like an hour and 10 minutes away so we actually have to make like a little road trip journey out of it if we want to go to the drive-in and especially with 50 percent we'll never really able be able to predict if if we're going to get in so we're going to drive like an hour and a half just to hope that we're under the 50 percent line so i guess that's pretty terrifying in regards to how much gas we might waste yeah but like i mean i feel bad because they're just trying to show movies and that kind of stuff. And they probably won't show any new movies, obviously, because there's none coming out. Um, but, like, to go see a classic movie on a drive-in theater, like, that sounds like a great time for people who are stuck in quarantine and can't go to the movie theaters in general. So I do hope that the capacity will be increased um, because I definitely think it's something that they can uh, limit and they can control if people are staying in their cars mostly and they're trying to avoid each other, and there's still social distancing, I feel like that's okay. And especially here in Nova Scotia, where we only have two active cases. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that there was one that popped up today. But it is very low right now in regards to active cases, so it seems like as we go forward now, we should be able to start uh, easing on some of the restrictions. But you never know. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, here's hoping, but who knows? I mean, the drive-in is such a great chance to see old movies, though, that we haven't ever gotten to see on the big screen. Like, I've seen a lot of people talking about how cool it would be to see Mad Max at the drive-in. And I'm like, oh, Oh. that movie. I never uh, got to properly see that movie in theaters. Like, I I did go see it with my friends, but I didn't understand what I was going to see when I went. Like, we just sort of went to the movies, and I was sort of confused. And so I rewatched Mad Max when I was at home, and I'm like, damn it, I wish I paid more attention when I saw that in the movie theater. Because that movie is, is meant for the big screen. Have you seen the first one? No, and I feel like that's why I was so um, thrown off by it, as I felt like I was watching a sequel. Despite the fact that it is a sequel, it's sort of self-contained. I, I, I wouldn't say this. Yeah, I guess it's more of a self-contained sequel, because it's. I haven't seen the first one either, so I don't know if there are any references back to the first one or whatever. But watching that one, I wasn't confused about if it was a sequel or not. Um, I have watched a couple of clips from the old one. It's very interesting. Uh, it looks kind of cool, but like... Is it, it's, is it the same character? I think so. I don't really know. I know that it's not as high budget, and I mean, it was made uh, like earlier, so they didn't have like the crazy CGI and the ability to make these flame truck things right. and all these crazy 
uh, machines, but I think it was filmed in like the Australian outback and it's very interesting. Um, I'll have to check it out for sure. Yeah. So will I, there's a lot of movies that I'm hoping if the drive-in opens, it gets the chance to play. Like I would love to see like eighties movies on the, on the drive-in and maybe some horror movies like that. Horror movies are, I think the genre that I've never really gotten to see on the drive-in and Considering horror and the drive-ins history together, like, you know, like a lot of people went to the drive-in when horror movies were booming in the 80s because it's like that scary vibe of being in a car watching a, a movie on a big screen. Like you're in a car with your girlfriend and, oh, she gets scared. So she huddles up close to you and then you do the yawn and put your arm around the, her. <laughs> the classics, you know? Yeah, exactly, man. And yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like horror and the drive-in are just synonymous with each other and I've never really gotten to see any horror movies at the drive-in, so I'm hoping maybe they'll play some 80s movies uh, this summer. That'd be awesome. That would be great. I would love to see... Um, we watched uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show in uh park in Halifax. Like There was just this thing going on where they showed it on a big inflatable movie projector screen. It was amazing. I loved it so much. I love that movie. Um, so I'd love to see like a movie like that on... Uh, drive-in theater where I'm just in my car singing along to the soundtrack. Like, imagine seeing Grease in a drive-in in your own It'd car. It'd be so much fun. It'd I'd be so be, much fun. I'd be doing the hand drive in my car, and everyone's like, why is this car bouncing so much? <laughs> but it's just me in the front seat doing the hand drive by myself. It, it really gives them a lot of opportunities, too, because I, I will, we'll, we talked about the drive-in to start the last episode, so we won't talk too long on it, but it does really give them a lot of cool opportunities now to have themed nights like they can have like a horror night and they can have like a, a Pixar night like a kids night and they can have like an old school action movie night and just vice versa the in musicals and stuff the amount of themes that they could have because no movies are coming out right now so people will be very intrigued and drawn in by the idea of like oh let's go watch some of our favorite comedy movies oh let's go watch some of our favorite uh, horror movies on on the big screen so it's it's a great opportunity and I'm hoping our drive-in open soon because as of right now it's still closed and I'm really excited to get out there and see some movies this summer. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, but shall we uh, get into this movie? Yeah, let's talk about Knives Out now. Let's dive right into it. So Knives Out has an amazing cast. That's what we want to touch on first. Um, it's got and excuse me if I say any of these names wrong, uh, but it's got Anna de Armas as our main character. Um, why can I not remember the main character's name? I have it written down Marta here. Cabrera. There we go, Marta Cabrera. Uh, it's also got Chris Evans as Ransom, Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, the uh, detective. Jamie Lee Curtis is in there. Lakeith Stanfield is in there. Christopher Plummer is there. Um, Jaden Martell is in there. Michael Shannon's in there. It's amazing. It's got a star-studded cast, and I think that's what excited me me about this movie in the first place because like I saw the cast and I was like wow I don't even know what this movie's about but I already want to see it I remember um seeing news articles about this movie coming out back when it was first announced and the very first thing I ever heard about Knives Out was Jamie Lee Curtis cast in Ryan Johnson murder mystery and I was like that's awesome because I uh you know I'm a huge Halloween fan so I love Jamie Lee Curtis and seeing her in roles where she's not directly tied to the horror genre is always fun. So when I seen she was cast in it, I got really excited. And then the cast just continued to grow and build. And I don't know about you guys listening, but for me, I know everybody on this cast from something like, I don't know. Like there's not a single actor in this that I don't know from a certain movie or role. I think the only one I don't know is Kath. Uh, Catherine Langford, the girl who plays Meg, I don't know her, and I think that's mm-hmm. the only one. She's from 13 Reasons Why. Ah, well, that's why. I haven't watched that show, so. Yeah, and she's in Love, Simon, I think, too, but those are her, her big roles. She was supposed to be in Endgame as Tony Stark's daughter, but they cut her scene. Oh, right. I remember seeing that uh, deleted scene. Um, it's not a good scene, to be honest with you. I'm glad it's not in the movie. Yeah, true. Uh, the only uh, only other actor I really don't know is uh, Anna de Armas. I only know her from Blade Runner 20, uh, whatever the heck, the newest Blade Runner movie. She's Oh, the, yeah, yeah, 2049. Yeah, she's the AI thing, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I know her from uh, Knock Knock, which is a horror movie that came out a few years ago with Keanu Reeves in it. And it's, you know, it's okay. But she's <laughs> she's in that. 
But yeah, I mean, everyone else is, and Lakeith Stanfield showing up again for, I think it's the third episode that he's been in one of these movies. I love him so much. I think it's because of Atlanta that I love him so much, but he does a great job in this movie too. We we stand Lakeith Stanfield. I I stand Lakeith Stanfield so hard, man. He's just <laughs> so good. If you haven't seen Atlanta, watch Atlanta just for Lakeith Stanfield because he is unbelievable. I mean, so is uh, Donald Glover, but Lakeith Stanfield does great in that show. I uh, yeah, I would say I, we're going on a tangent, but that's okay. I would say <laughs> that uh, Lakeith Stanfield is the best character in Atlanta for sure. I mean, Donald Glover's great in it, but. Uh, I think his name is Darius, right? In, yeah. In Atlanta. Yeah, his his character is by far the best part of that show, in my opinion. Yeah, he's... I, I don't know. He just brings another uh, element to the show um, that makes it so much better. Uh, but go check that out, too. He's an actor that deserves a lot more um, mainstream credit, and he's he's starting to get it now with, you know, this and, and Uncut Gems, but he's great. He's in a lot of movies, and he's... He's finally starting to get the attention he deserves, and I basically love him in every single role. Even, even movies like Death Note, I still enjoy him in that movie. So, he's I'm, in I'm Death a big Note? fan. Yeah, he's L. Oh wow, I didn't even yeah. know that. In the movie, he plays L. He's he plays him very differently than the character acts in the anime, but um, I think because it's Lakeith, I'm probably biased, and I just love the performance, anyways. Um. I one movie I haven't seen that he's in that I should see is that one uh I can't remember what it's about but it uh, what it's called but it's about like he's a telemarketer essentially and then he everyone's got a white person voice for the yeah, telemarketer Yeah, sorry to bother you. Yeah. Sorry to bother you. I haven't seen that. I should watch that cuz it also is Terry Crews who plays his uh his cousin or something, right? Yeah. Um but I I should watch that cuz that looks like a funny movie. Yeah, it's wild. That movie's insane. It's worth watching for sure. Um, but yeah, this movie. <laughs> back to this ba- movie. Back to back to Knives Out after like clearing like ten different movies in the course of four minutes. Literally. Um, uh, this movie is essentially a whodunit movie. Um, there's classic movies like that, like uh, Murder on the Oriental Express and the Sherlock Holmes ones with Robert Downey Jr., which I I love those movies too. I like the Sherlock Holmes TV show better. Um, cause that is elementary. Show. No. Um, the one with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, right. With Bonnell battle, beetle batch, uh, Ben Donaldick, uh, cumber cucumber man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he is great, uh, in that show. He, there's another show to check out, check out. Um, but this is like a classic whodunit movie. And when you hear that in movies or when you see movies like that, they aren't really, this one's not what you expect from a classic whodunit movie. Because, like, when we talk about classic whodunit tropes, we usually follow the detective who's trying to solve the murder, and we get all the suspects, and we follow the detective as he essentially solves the case. Um, and we find out who maliciously killed said person. Um, but this movie kind of changes that in a very, in my opinion, which is a very cool way of doing it. Yeah, it's it's incredibly inventive with the way that it subverts the murder mystery because a lot of the things that are on display here are typical cliches of, of a murder mystery and the influence of uh, Agatha Christie's books, and I've never really read a lot of her books, but I know that she's the biggest murder mystery uh, person that a lot of people know. Um, you know, right down to the little things like uh, Benoit Blanc, his name, like Agatha Christie, uh, has a character named Her- Hercule Poirot, I think is how you pronounce it, because I'm I'm not a big Murder on the Orient Express fan, but I know that a lot of the mystery here is inspired directly by her in her books, and you can even see that down to the character names and stuff like that. So it, the way it subverts it, it's it's very low key with some of the aspects of it, but then other things are like total shift of what murder mystery is as a genre. Yeah, it's interesting you mention that um, because uh, one of the little as I was researching this movie, one of the interesting thing is that um, our main guy, well, the guy who gets killed, Harlan Thrombey, was named after a choose-your-own-adventure book titled Who Killed Harlan Thrombey? Um, and so it's it's very, I don't know who wrote that book or anything, um, but it was just one of the uh, writers. He read it as a kid, and so he just threw it in there as like a little nod. Um but yeah, this this movie it keeps a lot of the whodunit tropes, but it also changes them up and mixes everything around. Um, just as a main one, 
the biggest one of them all is we're usually trying to figure out who killed the person, but this movie starts off by showing us who killed the person. Um, Anna de Arm's character, she is the house, she is the caretaker essentially of uh, Harlan Thrombey. And one night when he, she is giving him his medicine, she accidentally mixes up the doses and essentially kills him. Um, and he, Harlan Thrombey, is this huge mystery novel writer guy. And so as he is dying, he essentially tells her what to do and how to get out of this scot-free um, and make it look like an accident and or he, make it look like he killed himself. And then he straight up slits his throat. Yeah, I was actually reading that um, they wanted to make it more gruesome and bloody, um, but they tried to keep the movie PG-13, uh, so they got rid of that. But he literally slits his own throat. Yeah, I understand them wanting to go for PG-13 because this is a good movie that, I mean, there's nothing too explicit you couldn't show like your 12-year-old, 13, obviously I'm not saying take your 12-year-old, 13-year-old to knives out, but I'm saying if you do, there's nothing overly explicit that prevents it from being a movie that people can enjoy as a family. I'm not saying it's a family movie either. I'm just saying there are a certain demographic of people who could watch this movie together and still get something out of it. Whereas if you had cranked it upwards from uh, PG-13, it might have limited its audience a bit. Not that it would negatively affect the movie considering its audience is mainly adults, but you know what I mean. Yeah, and uh, an interesting thing I read was that, that, you know that scene with Ransom where he's literally just telling everyone to eat shit. Yes. Um, apparently that was supposed to originally be um, fuck you, but to keep it PG-13, I, I guess eat shit is a better, more PG-13 way of saying that. I, I don't really understand the guidelines to that. Eat shit um, works way better, though. It, it was hilarious. I loved it so much. I was laughing through that entire scene. Um but apparently uh, Chris Evans just came up with that on his own. He was, they were like, we got to change it somehow. And then he's just like, eat shit, eat shit, eat shit. <laughs> Michael Shannon in the background of that scene, it's such a little detail, but I noticed it. It made me laugh so hard. He's like, while he's, they're all yelling at each other, they start raising their voices. And Michael, Michael, uh, Michael Shannon's like, I will not eat one morsel of shit. He just, he just <laughs> says it like really randomly. And it's just like thrown into the chaos. And you just hear him say it. It's so funny. He he is great in this movie. I actually, when I first saw this movie, I mistook him as Bill Hader with a lot of makeup on to make him look. I could older. see that. I could see that. They have they look very similar. They have very similar ways of talking. So, um, but yeah, this this movie. I forget what we were talking about. <laughs> um, but essentially, so yeah, this movie. We see Harlan Thrombey die. We know who the villain is. Um, or not the villain, but we know who done it. Uh, which is the complete opposite from any normal murder mystery. Uh, and it's really interesting because then we follow the person who has killed uh, Harlan Thrombey. She's our main character now, and we follow her as she works closely with the detective to try and figure out who done it, even though we already know it's her. And the main reason why she works closely with the detective is because she, she can't lie. This is a really interesting thing I liked about this movie, is that... Um, the reason she can't lie is because whenever she lies, she throws up. Like, is that an actual medical disease? Do you <laughs> I, think? I was just about to ask you that. Do you think? I mean, I'm sure with the amount of people on this uh, world that I'm sure somebody can't lie without throwing up. But like, is that a thing that like people can get? Like, where you throw up when you lie? Maybe I. I don't know. I'm no doctor. Uh, if it is, wow, like that person has to be honest and truthful for their entire life. Imagine, imagine being that person and you go to your wedding, you're at your wedding at the altar and you've been putting up with this person for so long. And, uh, when the <laughs> dude is standing there and he's like, uh, do you love each other wholeheartedly and everything? And you just go, yeah, and just throw up all over their suit. Like, oh my, that would be so bad. I feel so Mar bad for that person in real life. Marta's wedding. That's Marta's wedding. That is Marta's wedding. <laughs> but yeah, so that's a super interesting thing that also adds on top of like, there's always that weird trope, I find at least in murder mystery kind of things, where there's one character who has something off about them. But it's really interesting to see it in that in this case, this thing that is off about this one character 
could actually be her downfall. Because mm-hmm. um, she's the one who's done it, and she can't say, if they asked her, did you kill him, like, straight up, and she says no, she would vomit, essentially. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think the writing is really interesting for this movie, because the way they flip it is not something I expected. Like, I knew I was going to go into this movie, and I was going to get some sort of subversion of the murder mystery genre, but I did not expect them to be like, yeah, Marta did it, she killed him, 30 minutes in, and I was just like... Okay, so for the rest of the movie, are we just watching her try and cover her tracks or what? And uh, just as it starts to unravel, it's just crazy how it's cool watching how Harlem is a famous murder mystery writer who is then himself murdered, which thus launches an actual murder mystery in his home. I just think that that's, uh, that's what I wrote down in my notes, and I think that that's such an interesting way of wording it, is a murder mystery writer who is murdered and then starts a murder mystery in his home. It's ridiculously meta. And I love it. Uh, the one thing I was just going to say was that it's super interesting to see it get flipped on its head like this um, because usually we're on the detective side, and we still are on the detective side in this movie, even though we like the person who uh, had, the, like, essentially murdered him. Um, and so we're kind of torn between these two characters and we're like who do we root for what do we do and we're just kind of rooting for both sides at least that's what i was like i was like rooting for both sides um but there's always the little twist at the end of the movie that's actually like whoa it's cool because they keep the twist in this movie even though we are almost positive by the end of this movie that there is no way there could be a twist because uh marta gets found out and they take her to confront the family to tell the family that she was the one who did it um, and then, woo, big twist where it was actually Ransom who switched the vials because he wasn't getting anything out of the inheritance uh, that Harlan had. Yeah, and you you can really see, like, if you watch his character closely, how a lot of the things he's doing are, you know, um, struggling to come up with a word here, but he's he's got this negative presence to him in a lot of his scenes where you feel like he might be a red herring, but looking at Chris Evans as the red herring in your brain, you're like, oh, it's Chris Evans. He's not the red herring. Who would cast Chris Evans as the red herring? That's useless, and it's a waste of his talent. So you, you, you're you an hour into this movie, and you haven't even met Chris Evans' character yet, and then he shows up, uh, and he's all menacing in this weird sense. We're not menacing in the sense where he's, like, scary, but menacing in the sense where you don't know if you can really trust him at all. But yeah. because, because of the fact that it's Chris Evans, your brain is like, well, it's Chris Evans. This is Captain America, so it's it's got to be fine. And I think that that's really smart uh, of Ryan Johnson as casting Chris Evans coming straight off of his role as one of the most liked characters on the big screen right now and then trying to turn him into this despicable little dick. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. But I... I also think that regardless of who played Ransom, I think we would have trusted him um, regardless of who it was. Uh, Just because there's so many examples in the movie where he's essentially set up to be the last person you'd expect because he hates the family already. Like, he he comes to the hearing where he already knows he's not going to get anything in the will um, just just to see the family's reaction, essentially. He mm-hmm. knows that everything's going to Marta, and so he comes just to see the reaction. He has nothing to gain from killing him because he's not getting anything in the will. On top of that, um, he's also the only one in the family who helps Marta uh, figure it all out. He is, like, conniving and evil where he makes her eat the bowl of beans, and it's like, I just know you fully ate, and now if you lie, you're going to throw up everywhere. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very interesting to see him... Because I think whoever would have played him, we would have trusted him anyways because we know that he has nothing to gain from the murder. So we kind of rule him off early. And especially since he's not around and we don't get as much background information from any other character, um, he's kind of in the shadows until, like you said, an hour into the movie pretty much. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he has a single scene in this movie until an hour in. And... That itself is sort of what makes you not want to look at him as the person who might have done this because you already have this cast of people who are so, like, despicable. Like, every single person in this family sucks. Mm -hmm. And they're all played so wonderfully by their actors and everything. But, like, the characters themselves, they're really shitty people, almost all of them. So, like, your brain could 
like the tagline for the movie is hell. Any of them could have done it. And that's the exact perfect way of wording it. Like you're looking at these guys and you're like, you have a reason to do it. You have a reason to do it. Like, so when you meet uh, Chris Evans character ransom an hour into the movie and he's the only one who doesn't have a reason to do it, your brain is instantly like, okay, well it can't be him. Yeah. And especially with the fact that I think these characters are, are really well written because we essentially get to know each of them and we slowly see their imperfections. Whereas Ransom, we immediately see his imperfections. We know he wasn't there um, when they had the burial for him. We know that he is the black sheep of the family. We know that no one likes him. Um, so we immediately see all these wrong things about him and we... Once he does a good thing, we're like, oh, he's actually secretly nice. When all these other people are like, oh, they're nice but secretly mean. You right. know? And so we get that kind of underdog story when we're like, okay, we can trust this guy. He's the only guy we can trust. Right. Um, and I'm, just a quick little thing about Ransom. Uh, there's one scene where he gets out of his car and the dogs that are at the house attack him. And... Well, they don't attack him, but, like, they jump up on him, and, like, he's trying to shoo them away and stuff because it's said that the dogs don't like Ransom, and Ransom's the only one that the dogs don't like. Um, and the way they did that was Chris Evans essentially put their chew toy in his pocket, and as he got out of the car, the dogs were coming for the chew toy, but it looked like they were coming for him. Ah, that's fun. Um, and so it was just, like... It's just a funny little thing where in an interview he was like, I love dogs, but these dogs just were, I had to make them look like they, I didn't want them. So I just like put their chew toy in my pocket and they ran at me. Um, and it's, it's fun because that works as like a cool little thing, but that's also more evidence into the fact that Ransom is the person who ended up doing this because they mentioned a couple times that the dogs don't like Ransom. And then during the middle of the night, the dogs start barking, and you assume they're barking at Marta, but when you look at it after knowing the whole picture, you can easily see how it was Ransom all along. Yeah, at the end when it gets all explained, you can kind of see everything, like, connects, and you have that aha moment, like, he's the one who did it. Plus, like, I mean, come on, let's be honest, his name is Ransom, like... Yeah, yeah. Marta gets sent a Ransom note about the medical files on Harlan... And it's like, oh, man, I wonder who it could have been. I mean, I didn't know that when I first watched the movie, obviously. But now that it, now that I know it, it kind of, like, is one of those things that stares you in the face. And you're like, huh, maybe I should have seen that earlier. Yeah. And he, he really takes her on a big journey that makes you think that his character might be trustworthy. Because you really do feel like he's in this to help her. But the pieces start aligning a lot on their little drive that they go on together that something is up, especially when he directly starts trying to convince uh, Marta to, like, flee from um, Benoit Blanc. So there's there's a lot of things there where you're, where you're watching him and you're like, okay, this dude is clearly more malicious than he's letting on, and it starts to reveal itself piece by piece by piece, despite the fact that you already, like you said, you, you meet him as this smug asshole but you don't think he's someone capable of necessarily killing anyone because there's no reason for him to do it. But the pieces start aligning as you watch the movie more, and it, it's just impressive to look back on. Yeah, and um, just to talk about some of the other characters in this family, um, there's a lot of like interesting characters who have different motives and all that stuff. It's that classic whodunit, like, oh, they all have different motives. Um but an interesting thing about all the characters' names is that they're actually named after 70s rock stars. So, um, like, Richard and Linda are the couple that, uh, uh, why can't I think of, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and whatever the heck his name is. That That's them. Um, and they're named after Rich, uh, Richard and Linda Thompson and Joni, uh, who is uh, Tony Collette's character is named after the Canadian singer Joni Mitchell. Oh, right and on. And her deceased husband that we never meet, obviously, because he's dead, is named Neil, uh, named after Neil Young. And then Walt and Donna are Walter Becker and Donna Fagan from Steely Dan. So it's one of those interesting little things that if you're like a, maybe if you were a 70s rock star lover, you would notice that in the movie. But it was just a cool little thing I read about their names. And then obviously Ransom's the only exception. Um, 
But another interesting thing I read was that his name is from a uh, character from a C.S. Lewis space trilogy. Uh, <laughs> really? And the writer was just like, Ransom sounds like a really cool name. I want to have that as my character. So That's fun. Very little interesting fun facts about Ra- these characters. Ryan, Ryan Johnson must be a huge 70s rock fan then. Maybe. Who knows? Uh, but I, I just thought that was really interesting. I, and I mean, it's not... It's a pretty smart idea, uh, it, I, even if it's just like a little fun thing. But it's an easy way to remember those characters' names. Like, let's say if you are a '70s rock fan, it would be an easy way to be like, okay, here's all our characters, and this one's named after this, and it's a fun little Easter egg for any of those people, especially for the dude who wrote it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but another thing I'd like to talk about in this movie is just about our characters is the amazing performance by Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc. I was um, waiting for the chance to bring up Daniel Craig and his southern drawl. His southern drawl. I can't do a good, like, southern drawl. Mine sounds ta- like twangy. Um, but he has an w- interesting accent in this movie. I was reading that his accent's inspired by some uh, famous historian. I can't remember his name. I should have wrote it down, but I didn't. Um, but it's got this, like very smooth like texas southern drawl with a little bit of foghorn leghorn mixed in (laughs) you know that's who i think of whenever i think of like a southern drawl i'm like foghorn leghorn i I Um, always say that one too whenever i'm talking about it he's just the classic example i can't i'm not even gonna try and do an accent because i would butcher it i would be so bad i was about to and i'm like i'm just gonna reevaluate what i'm about to do and i'm not gonna do it (laughs) <laughs> but but yeah, he's he's got this very smooth, almost like molasses sort of. I don't know why molasses is what comes to my mind, but it's like smooth like molasses. It's it's like this. It's like honey. His voice is like honey. Exactly. And I honestly, when I heard his voice, his accent uh, in this movie, I was like blown away for a second. I was like, what is coming from the man who plays 007? <laughs> and it's usually like gruff and rough. And he's just like sitting in the back flipping a coin pressing a piano key this whole um, bi- this whole thing is one big donut <laughs> but this whole thing is one big donut and there's a donut hole in the middle i'm looking for but that donut hole actually is another hole in the middle it's so good it's like the um, best line he he gives an amazing performance in this movie and i think it works really well with um this whole like flipping the ho- the who done it genre on its head because we do get our character of the really smart detective like he has been known around and he got like an anonymous note with a bunch of money in it to come look into this murder um and so we know he is our like big detective who's gonna solve it um but we also get it with um the kind of lakeith stanfield and his partner i can't remember his name um we get it from them too, even though they kind of seem like the stereotypical dumb cops, even though they aren't, um, where they're kind of just on the sidelines being like, obviously it was a suicide. And then Benoit Blanc comes in. He's like, I think not. Yeah. And, and then, then you have that cop who's like a total fanboy for, for Harlan. And he's talking about all of his books and how he's like blown away at being in Harlan's house and stuff. So it's, yeah, you can tell that before Benoit Blanc shows up, this case would have been pretty cut and dry with the police force just being like okay he was he killed himself or some something like that exactly and i think that's another interesting thing that this movie does because um ransom actually ends up being the guy who hires benoit blanc because he knows that once marta accidentally kills harlan harlan's gonna have some crazy plan for him so he needs someone better than just the police you know Mm -hmm. um and that's where he comes in. And he does a great job in this movie. He's very much of like a uh, detective where he's very relaxed and uh, he's like, I don't try and find the truth. The truth just falls in front of me. And like that kind of stuff. It's very interesting and weird. And I love it so much. His character's great. Listening to his dialogue is like just one of the best parts of the movie because his he's like speaking his own language he tr- he truly has his own language if you like look at some of his lines that he says he's it's hilarious he's going on this tangent any anytime, anytime he talks he goes on this huge tangent he's he's a guy who likes to listen to himself talk yeah and i think 
that kind of leads us into another thing I want to talk about, which is the fact that this movie does an amazing job at balancing comedy and suspense without losing one or another. Like, for example, the best scene I can think of is when uh, Marta goes and finds the housekeeper or whoever she is who's, like, dying in that abandoned mm-hmm. laundromat, right? Right, which, um, yeah, because she's, she's told to meet at the laundromat, and then she ends up finding, yeah, the, I think she's the house, housekeeper who's dying. She's been injected with, with poison or whatever uh, Harlem was injected with earlier. Something like that. And uh, so as that's happening, like, it's this huge scene where she's like, Marta's like, what's going on? Like, ah, um, but... Uh, in the car, literally in the car that she drove in, there's Benoit Blanc, because he was with her in the car, just sitting in the car listening to music on his iPod. Um, and so we get this cut from the super intense scene to Benoit Blanc sitting in the, in the car, singing some song, and then he like looks in the rearview mirror, and there's an ambulance. And he's yeah. just like, oh no, and he gets out of the car, or something like that. Um, so I think this movie does a really good job at keeping that suspense that we want from a murder mystery but also giving us these funny moments and like things like that um like uh oh what's his name um uh the guy who's from stranger things that's in this movie or not stranger things it who's in this movie oh uh, Jaden martell yeah his character is i kind of feel bad for his character because it's like rarely ever used except to be the butt of a joke where he's like he's some uh political kid who sits on his phone all the time and he's used like once to give some interesting information um but he's kind of one of those characters who is just literally a joke in the movie and it's okay it works mm-hmm. um because obviously we don't suspect it to be this random kid so he can kind of be one of those joke characters um i kind of wish there was more out of his character because he's just one of those throwaway ones but i mean every movie kind of needs a throwaway character yeah i, I do agree that the two least utilized actors in this movie are Jaden Martell and Lakeith Stanfield. And unfortunately I'm big fans of both of them and I'm just glad they're in the movie, but yeah, they're both pretty underutilized as characters for sure. Yeah. But I mean, they still do a great job. I mean, uh, Lakeith Stanfield is very funny and is a good, I think he's a good balance from Daniel Craig's character where Daniel Craig is like this, there's a mystery afoot. And Lakeith Stanfield's like, not really. He's more like the level-headed guy in this, yeah. uh, a, like the common sense. There's a scene where he, there, where Benoit Blanc is rambling on, and Lakeith Stanfield is just like he, he just casually refers to him. He's like, "Okay, Benny." Like it's 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 hilarious how they this they they have this weird dynamic as characters where Lakeith Stanfield is the pretty stern cop who's just here to do his typical job at at this house and then leave, and Daniel Craig is very determined to figure out what's going on in regards to what you said about the comedy though i agree that a lot of the comedy works because of the fact that the way they separate the scenes of tension and humor but also it works because in mid-argument while characters are yelling at each other and everything's tense and and while you're in the middle of finding out parts of the investigation they'll just have fun line deliveries from actors or actresses in the movie like a lot of the humor in this is based off of the way that characters deliver their lines or the facial expressions like when everybody's arguing and ransom has just showed up right after his little eat shit thing. He's just making the funniest faces. Like yeah, the, he's the, making these funny faces and just eating like a thing of cookies or something. Yeah. The part, there. the part where he's like, I don't even remember the context prior to it, but just the part where Chris Evans just says, wow, it's just the way he says it and the way he sells it on his face that a lot of the humor comes from things like that, where it's just, uh, based on how actors deliver things yeah and and even like at the end of the movie uh we get this like super anticlimactic i'm not anticlimactic it's really climactic and then it just kind of like uh has this funny ending where one of the things that harlan says in the movie is like sometimes the game gets so real where you can't uh notice a real knife from a fake one or something like that and at the end of the movie once Ransom's found out, in a last-ditch effort, he, like, grabs a knife off of this amazing circle of knives that we're going to talk about in a minute here um, and goes to stab Marta until he realizes it's a fake knife um, and he doesn't stab her at all. And then he's just like... I think he is literally laying there on the floor with the knife 
in her like chest and he pulls it out and he goes well shit and then gets pulled off by the cops or something like that it's really funny it's Um, the it's the retractable blade and he yeah he stabs it into her and they come to the ground and he's got the knife in her chest and you for a minute you're like oh she might be dead and then he pulls the knife up and you can hear like the you know the yeah, like the knife sh- rolling up. Shing. Yeah. And he tries to stab it into her a couple of times because it's the retractable blade and it just makes the, the noise. And he's just like, well, shit. And then, yeah, that's it. Well, not the ending um, of the movie, but that's the ending of that scene. Yeah. And even like with little tiny things, I just remembered this now that we're talking about the end of the movie, um, where uh, Harlan essentially give every give everything to Marta. And Marta's standing in the house that she now owns on the balcony, looking at the rest of the family who's out in the driveway. And she's holding a cup, a cup that says "My house, my rules," but her uh, finger is covering the "my rules," and it just says "my house" on the cup because it's now her house. Yeah, um, just like little things like that is what makes this movie uh, awesome. But let's talk about some of the art design and camera work in this movie, since we mentioned yeah. that circle wheel of knives. Before we get directly into the art design, this is in the same area of like exterior, uh, other things from the movie, but I wanted to get into the score right quick before we get into the art design in particular because the score for this movie is incredible because somehow it manages to feel like a murder mystery score from like, you know, your typical murder mystery movie, but also feel like it's poking fun at murder mystery just through the score, like just through the way that the music introduces scenes. It feels like it's parodying. Um, murder mysteries while also still sounding like a murder mystery score. And I don't know how he does it. And I can't describe it to you any other way other than that, but it's, it's incredible. Uh, the best way I can try and describe that is it's got like that classic, it's got those violins and it's got that big orchestra feel, um, where it's like, dun, 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 you know, that, that kind of thing, um, yeah. going on. And I would totally agree that it makes you feel like you're watching an old murder mystery because, it the music fits so well with everything. It doesn't like, it doesn't genuinely make fun of anything. I think it more of like pokes fun at it, where the music accents everything that's going on without taking it over the top. Right. Um. And I was reading. I think it. I think this score was actually done by the director's brother or the writer's brother or maybe his cousin. I don't know. They're somehow related. Um. And I think that's super cool, too. And kudos on that score. Yeah, he did a really good job on that score. It's such a perfect murder mystery score, but it's also very low-key with what it's trying to trying to make you feel. And it, it's yeah, it's a really good score. I don't remember if it was nominated for Best Score at the Oscars, but it should have been. It was good. Um, yeah, no, it's it's great. And it, it reminds me of like that uh, beginning scene where they're interviewing everyone and Benoit Blanc is just in the back and he plays the one piano note whenever mm-hmm. he thinks something's a lie i believe i think that's what he does yeah um but yeah no really good uh but yeah let's talk about some art design uh so in this movie one of the more iconic set pieces is that giant that chair with a bunch of knives around it and it's really cool because when we're first introduced to the family and each of them kind of get interviewed by the police they're sitting in this chair and behind them is this wheel of knives pointing in at them like kind of i think it kind of is reminiscent to the idea that any one of them could have been the murderer like all these knives are right beside them and that's how harlan died was a knife through the throat so it's kind of like that anyone could be the murderer kind of thing and it also adds i think pressure for the Mm -hmm. audience on a visual level because as these characters are sitting there there's literally a bunch of knives pointing right in at them so it adds that tenseness of um imagine sitting there a bunch of knives pointing at you and the cops just interviewing you Mm -hmm. Um, it amps up that tension um with with the knives meeting introducing these characters surrounded by the weapon that killed harlan is such a smart way of introducing every single character in this movie because it really drives home what you were just saying about anyone could have done it because literally every character as we meet them are surrounded with the weapon that killed harlan exactly um, and so it's just this super cool way of, uh, doing that, uh, in an art style. And also the entire house in general is ridiculously over the top. Like it, I think it works so well because this house is owned by a murder mystery novelist. So it feels like a murder mystery house where there's a bunch of weird statues and paintings and 
like decorative pieces and old uh, relics and stuff like that just all over the house, which are actually from his uh, books and that kind of stuff. But in reality, they just make the house seem more like a mystery house that's got a bunch of weird stuff in it. Right. Um, and it's a really, really well done job by the set designer and art director and all that stuff. Um, and just to talk about the set director, um, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his last name. It's David Schlesinger. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. I have no idea. Yeah. You should have stuck with not trying to pronounce his last name. <laughs> I know. I said it. I said I wasn't going to pronounce it, and then I tried to pronounce it. I was just like, maybe I should just not. Anywho, um, interesting facts about him is that he was also the set director for John Wick 2 and 3, all of the Jessica Jones series, and the King of Staten Island, which is coming out, uh, that we're super excited for. It's that new movie um, with Pete Davidson. Uh, is it about his life? I feel like I heard something that's about his life, or maybe I'm yeah. wrong. It's very inspired by his life. I'm sure I think a lot of it's different, but I know that the general premise and core character of who he's playing in that movie are, yeah, inspired by his life growing up. I'm super excited to see that. Pete Davidson has um, proven that he is actually a fairly good actor. We watched Big Time Adolescence together, which is a really fun movie with him uh, starring as like the secondary character. I can't remember the character's name. Um, Me neither. But he does a really good job, and I love him on SNL and all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, so the set director did a set direction for that, and it just shows that how great of a job he did making this house look like a murder mystery novel. Yeah, agreed. And, like, uh, I was watching a video on it right before we started this, and, yeah, just really looking at the set design and production design for this movie, it emulates a rich person's home so well because it's all this excess like there's things that are just there because he's rich and he can have it and then there's things that are there paying uh, homage to his books and stuff and it's just this cluttered house full of antiques and a lot of like very expensive looking stuff and it's it's done very well he literally has a giant painting of himself hanging on the wall I want to do that at some point I want to get my own painting of myself me too. I know that sounds narcissistic, but wow, wouldn't it be fun to just like have a painting of yourself? I would just want to be in like the most ridiculous pose ever. <laughs> like, please just put me on the head of one of those baby angels and that's it. Or like, I don't know, maybe stick me on like have the, uh, you know, that classic where it's like God touching man painting. Yes. Um, I want I want it to be me on both of those. I want my head on both of those people. Or like, I don't know, something stupid like that. I I keep getting um these ads on Instagram of like, do you see these ads where it's like send in a picture of yourself and we'll give you like a regal painting to make you look like a king or a prince or anything like that. I keep getting an ad that's similar but way less cool. Well, it depends who you ask, actually. But I, I keep getting an ad that says, send in a picture of yourself, and we will turn you into a Rick and Morty character. So I, I'm i not getting the same one as you, but I'm, <laughs> I'm getting something similar. I thought you were going to say that you're getting the other one that I'm also getting, which is it's the same thing, but you send in a picture of your dog, and then the dog gets looked <laughs> look like a, a fancy like war person or something like that. But I have been getting that one, too. No, I, I, maybe I'll do that. Maybe that'll uh, appease my want of having a picture of myself looking <laughs> all fancy and nice. Um, but and yeah. I just wanted to say in regards to the painting, since we're still on the topic before we shift, um, did you know that this, for the set design of this movie, Harlan is looking pretty straight-faced. He's he's very, um in the, in the original painting for the first half of the movie, he's just staring. It's just like a stern stare. And after his murder is solved, after like everything's come to, like everybody knows what's happened now his painting is smiling which is just a fun little set design detail of of you wouldn't notice it while watching it i don't think but yeah the painting he goes from stern straight-faced when the murder is unsolved to by the time the murder is solved he's now smiling in his painting i actually did notice that and i wondered if it was intentional or not or if it was just me being like oh wow i never noticed that until now that he's actually smiling um but now i know i'm not crazy <laughs> And uh, this mo- this movie was filmed on three sets as well. I don't know if you knew that, but I felt like it was worth bringing up while we're still on uh, set design. Is 
Yeah, they filmed, I'm assuming, I don't know quite exactly how the three sets played out, but I'm assuming one was a exterior, um, the interior of the house they actually did use, and then they used a set, like, for the house. And I read somewhere that the family who owned the house would literally just be hanging out in different spots of the house while the production was going on, and they described watching Jamie Lee Curtis smoke a cigarette in her, like, full costume, and then be told they needed to leave the room so she could film her scene in that room. That's amazing. They were just hanging out. That'd be so cool. You're just, like, making food in the kitchen, and then, like, Chris Evans walks in. He's like, hey, can I have a glass of milk? (laughs) (laughs) That'd be so good. I'd be like, yes, Captain America, here you go. That's America's ass. (laughs) As he walks out of the kitchen, I'm just like, America's ass. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But, yeah, no, the set's very cool. Another thing I want to talk about about the set is – uh, the super interesting thing that I read that I didn't even think about um, is a lot of the characters in this movie have glasses. Uh, and one of the biggest problems when you're filming a movie with a character who does have glasses is the reflection of the crew in the glasses and stuff like that. So there's a lot of movies that will um, either get rid of that by using fake lenses or uh, using a certain kind of glass that doesn't really show much reflection or just not getting very close in their face. But this movie, since it needs a lot of those close-up shots, um, they I'm going to get into a little technical terms. I'll explain them as I go. Um, but the key grip, who is in charge of lighting and rigging in a movie, um, his name was Matt Mania. Yes, his last name is Mania. Very cool. Incredible. Incredible. I could be wrong, but that's what it said when I researched this. Um, he created these mats, which were like rigs, with windows and lights. So essentially what they were, from what I gather, is that they were these essentially thin pieces of the set where it was like, uh, it looked like a window, and they would kind of hang it above the crew and shine light through it to make it look like the glasses were reflecting the windows that were actually, that should have been behind the cast, or the crew. That's so impressive. Super smart way of doing it. Um, and... Uh, there's a tweet that they have about it that I, I sent to Hayden so we could just check it out. And it essentially just looks like a big sheet that's been um, made to look like windows. Super cool, very smart way of doing it um, to still get those close-up shots without having the reflection of a camera or the crew, you know? Right. Um, and it just shows kind of like the commitment that this uh, key grip guy had. Because super impressive, very smart, inventive way of solving that problem instead of completely changing everything. Yeah, and I'm excited for us to eventually do this podcast as like a video podcast because then we could just show you like the picture that we're referring to right now and you could you could see what we're referring to. But yeah, it's basically like a picture of the behind the scenes of the set and they've got Jamie Lee Curtis in the chair and you can just see that right behind all the camera they have like a bunch of mats that are meant to look like... Uh, windows and and stuff and it's it's really impressive it's cool how they did that yeah and it it adds kind of that extra ability to be able to do those close-up shots where we really get to see the character and how their face moves and how they talk and all that those little important things that are really useful especially in a murder mystery like this where we're trying to figure out um like who is lying even though we actually know who uh done the killing you know who done it um but it it kind of like the movie kind of begs that there's something deeper and there's something else and we're like okay what else who else is lying what else is going on here Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think one of one of the final things that i really want to get into about this movie is um the subversion of expectations and how it failed in Ryan's previous movie and how well it works here. And I think maybe Knives Out was an attempt to rectify his um, errors in subversion of expectations with, with Last Jedi. Because with Last Jedi, he's still got that same tone to his directorial style where you can tell he wants to give you something and then present it at face value and then flip it, right? But with Last Jedi, it doesn't work well because of the fact that He's subverting people's expectations for a franchise that they've waited a conclusion for for 30 years. So that's one of the big reasons Last Jedi fails for half of Star Wars' fan base 
it's not because it's a bad movie. I would argue that Last Jedi is actually, if we're looking into technicality of how it was made, the best out of the new Star Wars trilogy. But the problem with it comes into play when you think about uh, how he subverted the expectations in Last Jedi but didn't give anyone what they were hoping. So Luke ends up being this grumpy old man. Uh, Han's dead and he doesn't get to talk to Luke and everything because he's already dead. So like everything that you were expecting to see in a Star Wars sequel is no longer there. And that movie is still a great movie, but he flips the things that people wanted to see and he doesn't give them it. And here with Knives Out, it's sort of the opposite. And I mean, obviously the reason it works so well here is because it's a totally different genre and he's not working with characters that are 40 years old. But yeah, I just, I wanted to bring that up and how well he subverts expectations in Knives Out because the entire time you're watching this thinking it's going to be a murder mystery and it becomes a thriller halfway through the movie, but whereas with Last Jedi, he tried to do a similar subversion of expectations, and it didn't work simply due to the constraints that were put on him by having a pre-existing fan base. Yeah, and it's hard to do that with, especially with those movies, like you said, like, people have been waiting years to get a conclusion, and like, that kind of stuff, so you can't kind of give that when you have characters that are already known and loved, um, and people kind of already expect to see that kind of thing because it's a loved franchise but like you were saying with this there's no expectation it's just out of the gate you're it's exciting and it's fun and you're meeting new characters and you can be like your thoughts can be flipped and changed because it is a murder mystery and that's what it's all about it's all about um how you think you're on the case and you're figuring out and then whoop just kidding here's this new thing to throw into the mix um so it definitely that is what this genre is essentially made for is to show things at face value just like how lakeith stanfield believes that it is in fact a suicide and flip it on its head how benoit blanc finds out that it's actually ransom who killed them you know Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah that's one of the most entertaining parts of a murder mystery is watching how it's unraveled and having your expectations that what you think of the murder mystery totally flipped and everything that you were thinking was going to happen doesn't happen. That's awesome in a murder mystery. And that's what people want from that genre. But with star Wars, people want, you know, closure to these characters that they've fallen in love with. Yeah. They want big epic lightsaber battles. They want cool catchphrases. They want to see the millennium Falcon come back again with Han and Chewie flying it because that's what they've loved. But with Mm -hmm. this, it's a totally new thing where when you're given the, a uh, classic murder mystery who done it and flip it on its head by telling you who done it and then flipping it on its head again by it not actually being the person you thought it was even though you like you knew face value that he, she killed him like you know that he flips it on you again and it's that's where that is useful not in a beloved franchise that's like saying yeah. oh, I'm going to do Toy Story 5 and then um in reality, was all in Andy's head, and he's actually in a hospital bed. And it's like, whoa, you can't do that. We love yeah. those characters. Because you're by, by doing something like that, you are shocking your audience, but you're not giving them anything of what they've hoped they would be getting. And I think with Luke in particular, I really do understand where Ryan was trying to go by subverting that character. But the problem is it's Luke Skywalker, and nobody wants to see him. Even Mark Hamill has talked openly about this. Nobody wants to see him as a cranky old man who is like, I hate the Jedi. I came here to die. I'm like, okay. I mean, like, I get what you were going for. And I've read a tweet by Ryan Johnson where he says that he feels it's unfair to treat Luke as a character who doesn't go through human emotion. And he, I think what he said in particular was, I think it's unfair to treat Luke as a video game character who has a never-ending power-up. And he's like, Luke is human, and I wanted to explore that. So I get where he was going. And it just doesn't work in Star Wars. And I, I'm a big Ryan Johnson fan. Like He directed some of the best episodes of Breaking Bad. I don't know if you knew that. Um, he did Looper, which is a great movie. And then he did Star Wars. So I think if I'm looking at his track record, the only movie by him that I don't love is Star Wars. I don't think I've ever seen Looper. Maybe I have. It's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt and... Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, yeah. I, yeah. I think I've seen that movie. Um, But yeah, I would agree. Like... If you're going to try, I feel like it doesn't work when you tell me that the one man who saved the entire Jedi Order and brought peace back to the galaxy and was fighting for the resistance for literally his entire life and that was his purpose. If you told me that 
he kind of just gave up on that, it doesn't really make sense. And I get it. He made mistakes, but so did young Luke. And young Luke learned from that. So I think one of the things is that um, as a character, you can't forget when you're building a character or you're making a sequel to something or things like that, you can't forget what the characters already learned because they need to move past that and have new problems. They can't keep stumbling because they have learned something new and we don't want to see them stumble through their same mistakes again, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think final question, last thing I wanted to ask you, because we talked about this prior to doing the episode and I'm looking at the timer now and we're an hour in, so we should wrap it up. But yeah, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is if you didn't know like, if you hadn't seen the movie and you didn't know that Ransom was the killer, who in this family, if it wasn't Ransom, do you think would have been capable of, of committing this murder? Um, when you first said this to me, I said Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Um, and that was from the standpoint of have already, having, bleh, having already watched the movie um, and, uh, like, knowing what she's all about and why she could be suspected of it. Um and looking at face value, I still would say Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Um, but you also said that uh, you made brought up a really good point that it could also be her husband. Um, yeah, Michael Michael Shannon's character. He's got a lot of moments where I'm like, you seem like you know or have done more than you're letting on. And I feel like if it didn't end up being Ransom, either having it be uh, Michael Shannon's character or Jamie Lee Curtis's character or them working together could have been an interesting uh, plot thread in my oh, opinion if it, was, no, if it no. wasn't ransom you don't mean oh that's not her husband jamie lee curtis's uh, husband is uh the other right guy. right michael okay, shannon's yes. character is her brother right okay so that's i'm still talking about him i just mislabeled um their connection to each other yeah i think it would have been interesting if it was her brother and her working on it not her and her husband sorry see i don't like looking at it face value i definitely could have guessed him too he kind of looks a little shady um but I think I ruled him off early in the movie just because he makes all of his money off of what Harlan does. Um, so killing him doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But at the True. same time, it does make sense because he does want the rights to all that stuff. And he assumed that Harlan would have given him the rights to all of his books and stuff in his will. Um, but you mentioned that um, when you said Jamie Lee Curtis's husband in this movie, I thought that was a good thing because... In this movie, he actually gets some dirt pulled up on him where he has a mistress, and only Harlan knows. So it totally makes sense that he could have been the one to kill Harlan to keep yeah, that wraps. That's, that's true. Um, he has no real huge ties to the family. He makes pretty much all of his money off of his wife. Um, so if let's say that uh they got what they were expecting to get in the will was the house. He it would have worked out great for him. He would have gotten a new house. He wouldn't have had to worry about his affair thing. He would have still had all the money um, from uh, his wife's business. Like it kind of works out for him really good, where he could really be suspected of it. Uh, but then you, as the movie goes on, you kind of realize he's a spineless coward. <laughs> who yeah, kind of just does whatever his wife says. Yeah, and that's that's really showcased in in some of the scenes where what he'll do to keep his his affair under wraps it's like dude you're you're very much a a weenie <laughs> you're a we- you're just a big weenie you, sir, you big weenie sir you are indeed a wiener if i could have heard daniel craig say sir you are indeed a weenie in a southern <laughs> smooth accent that would be my new ringtone <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh but yes that, that- that final would have easily gone this... down as the best line ever. Exactly. <laughs> um, final thoughts on this movie. I really enjoyed this movie. I saw it in theaters when I first saw it. I had a wonderful time. It's a great little, uh, I think it's like an hour and a half of your life where you just get taken on this wild ride and you kind of forget about what's going on and you get to live a murder mystery. It's almost as if it's a little game of Clue right here on your TV screen or on a big movie theater screen. Um but it's a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. I'd probably rate it like a 4.5 or a 4 out of 5. Maybe even a 5 out of 5. It was very good. I don't think I have many problems with it. So let's go with 4.5 out of 5. I think, um, yeah, I think 4.5 is where I stand with it as well. But this movie's amazing. And it will definitely go down as one of those movies that I will always keep in my head as just a fun watch. Yeah, and 
I just wanted to point out, you said that the movie, you're like, I think it's an hour and a half. I just looked it up. It's two hours and ten minutes. So that just really shows how much, fun, how much fun this movie is. Yeah. Like, it's it's runtime feels way shorter than it is because you're just totally in it. Yeah, it's a long movie. Wow. But, yeah, for me, it's a, it's a solid 4.5 out of 5. And I feel like someday I might give it the 5. Just where I stand with it right now, it is... 4.5. I think about this movie a lot. It's it's great, and you should check it out immediately. I've seen it three times, so yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. it twice. It's it's so good. Um, but yeah, I think that's all I have to say about Knives Out. Yeah, I think I think so. Me too. Thank you for joining us for the longest episode now of the Dive In Movie Cast because we have officially reached an hour and six minutes for this one. Uh, it might. We'll see what happens after I'm done all the editing. Maybe it won't even be that long. But who knows. Maybe I'll just add a little bit on the intro and outro music just to make it an hour and six minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a great movie. Thanks for joining us. If you want to hear about our other uh, movie recommendations and opinions, check out some of the other episodes or check out our letterbox where we post our reviews on movies and ratings on movies. Uh, my letterbox is uh, Wesley Giffen. And mine is Hayden Kutras, and you can find me at the same name on Instagram. And same here. And don't forget to check out our Instagram, uh, the Dive In Movie Cast, where we post upcoming podcasts, uh, interesting movie facts, all that good stuff, all your movie needs right there in one convenient location. The Dive In Movie Cast Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) That was my little little, uh, kind of sponsor advertisement right there. Yeah. Cue the the non-copyright music. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you for listening to us talk about uh, Knives Out, and you should check out the movie yourself and try and get to the center of the donut hole. (laughs) The center of the center of the donut hole. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we will see you guys next week. Yeah. See you on the next episode.